ago. Uh, we moved into an older home, so it's like 100 years old, and its foundation is made of pebbles and straw and some spit. Uh, and so you know how there's some foundations that have like the poured concrete or like the extra like block layer, you know, mine's not like that. So I had to lean into some more knowledgeable uh, construction people uh, that said it's a solid foundation, but looking at it makes me a little, a little bit nervous. So this morning, uh, we are looking at something that I believe is foundational, uh, something that I think gets at uh, what so much of your faith experience or the following of Jesus is built on. Uh, and I think it's I think it's an, it's it's of incredible importance because in Second Corinthians ten it says that we have divine power to tear down strongholds and this is what strongholds are they are arguments and lofty opinions that raise themselves up against the knowledge of God and I think there are some insidious lofty opinions that are anti-gospel, that have woven their way into the fabric of our faith. And uh, the, the problem with that is when we come up against certain moments of life, if our foundation is not solid, man, we're in trouble. And so uh, ultimately, we will be confronted by evil. It's going to happen. It's going to strike at some point in time. And when we get confronted by evil, that's when we experience things like suffering, despair, heartache, right? All while living in the beauty of God's creation, those things still touch and hit and impact our lives. And those are the moments, those are the places where evil has intersected our storyline. And it's that intersection that we call suffering. And I've taught on suffering before. We've talked about it uh, as a church. I think it's an important thing for us to learn uh, to grieve in the face of suffering, uh, and it is important for our Christian journey for us to do that well. However, this sermon is not primarily about suffering or how to grieve or to grow in emotional maturity when things start to break down. Um, that's not the point of this sermon. Uh, the point of this sermon is that over the next three weeks, we're not asking questions about how do we suffer well, we're asking questions about God. And that's what Habakkuk does. Habakkuk is asking, if God is just, how can there be evil? If God is sovereign, how can there be evil? If God is good, how can there be evil? And those are very important questions for us to ask uh, and to ask them of the Father. So, so the questions about evil uh, is to ask a question not about how do we handle pain or suffering or struggle, although those are important questions, that's not Habakkuk's question. Habakkuk's question is a God question. It gets to the foundation of our faith. What kind of God is this? How can God be who he says he is given the experience of life that is all around us? Given the horrific realities of evil, that the suffering of the innocent, and at times even more disturbing than the suffering of the innocent is the prospering of the wicked. Those are the questions of Habakkuk. And we ask the same thing today when we consider things like modern-day genocide, modern-day slavery, sexual abuse, physical abuse, the suffering of the innocent, issues of racism, of infidelity. How can God be good? How can God be sovereign? How can God be just when, when this is the experience of life that we find ourselves in? And in one way or another, you've asked these questions. Either you've been honest about those questions, like Habakkuk, you've, you've spoken them, you've verbalized those questions, or maybe you've hidden them. Maybe they've been subtle. Maybe they've crept into your head. But either way, I guarantee that they are there. And I want you to know, asking those questions, that's healthy. Right? That is, it's healthy to ask those questions. That was the whole point of last week's sermon. We have a whole prophet, a minor prophet, a book of the Bible given to these questions, a man of God articulating those very questions. And Habakkuk doesn't run away from the questions. In fact, he creates the tension by bringing the complaint directly to God. Right? He doesn't go to Jehoiakim. He doesn't go to the nations around him and complain to them. He's saying, God, why is this 
happening. So if the Bible doesn't run from or make excuses for God, then neither should we run from the questions. And so if you didn't hear last week's message, I do recommend that you go back uh, and listen to that introduction. Uh, But the whole point of it was that we need to be honest like Habakkuk is honest. Even in the face of frustrations, right, we see a profound faith starting to emerge. So being in a position of questioning the timing or the strategy of God is really far less troubling than the alternative. Think about it. It would be even more terrifying if God was not in charge in the first place, if God was powerless against a greater force of evil. What what if we never questioned God because we did not believe that he had the capacity to bring about something greater? I can accept a world where God is veiled and mysterious and I need to wait and I need to trust in his purposes, his plans, his leadership, but I cannot accept a world in which God is powerless and chaos and pain are in charge. So we've got to ask these questions and and maybe they feel like low-grade questions, right? They're just kind of, they're kind of back there, but I would say they're back there because they're at the foundation. And I think in times of trouble, when we're going to need to lean into the justice, the goodness, the sovereignty of God more than ever, if we don't have these questions answered, we're going to be in trouble. So today we're going to look at the first complaint of Habakkuk. And his complaint is primarily around this theme of the justice of God in the face of evil. And then we're going to attempt to, after we look at it, we're going to attempt to answer the questions that are raised by Habakkuk's Habakkuk's complaint. So the question then is, can I really trust the justice of God in the face of evil? Let's pray. God, I think we need your help this morning. I think we need your help because we are coming at an issue that is incredibly personal, incredibly emotional, but we're going to come at it from the standpoint of not primarily our hearts, but first our heads, that we want to think clearly about this issue, that we want to understand what is true about this issue. And then I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand your justice, help us to understand the way in which you work. And then I pray that you would take that journey to our hearts and awaken in us faith in who you are. So thank you, God. Our hope is in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So can I really trust the justice of God in the face of evil? Let me read to you Habakkuk 1, 1 to 4, which I introduced to you last week. We're gonna spend uh, some more time making some uh, really five observations about this passage before we tackle the, uh, before we tackle the, the core of his complaint. So the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw This is Habakkuk's complaint. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So five observations about Habakkuk's complaint. The first one is Habakkuk's complaint was his burden. If you notice there in verse one, right, it was the oracle of Habakkuk. Now that word isn't an uncommon word, um, but it's not the same word that always applies to a prophetic Vision. The word oracle is a word that speaks to a burden, right? So what um, Habakkuk has right now is he's carrying this burden. That is his oracle. So it is speaking to a, a, a prophetic utterance, and usually oracle has to do when it's talking about a foreign nation. But for Habakkuk, he's talking initially about his people, and then he's going to have complaint about another nation. That's going to be in two weeks from now. We'll get to his, uh, to his second complaint. So the other prophets saw a vision, but Habakkuk carried a burden. Habakkuk had an oracle. The content of much of Habakkuk's message points to the emphasis on his reception 
of the message, right? So if he's carrying a burden, that means God has given something to him and it's weighing him down, right? And so that's why his prophecy is dominated by a lament. So typically, you know, you think of Isaiah, he had this beautiful vision of the throne. Habakkuk isn't getting a beautiful vision. He's carrying a weighty burden. And I think that's why we can connect with Habakkuk's question. It's because Habakkuk is carrying the weight of something. Right? So that's his oracle. The second, uh, second point is Habakkuk's complaint begins like no other prophet. Right? The book of Habakkuk has a strange beginning for a prophetic book. The book of Isaiah begins with a complaint from God against his people. The book of Jeremiah begins with mysteriously with a special calling on Jeremiah's life. Ezekiel starts off describing some experience with God. Amos starts off again with, with an experience of God. And then Hosea begins with God's invitation for Hosea to, to marry a harlot. In Joel, he begins by asking the people questions about the cause of current, um, of current conditions. Obadiah opens with God's call to battle against Eden. Micah announces uh, the revelation of God. Nahum begins with a confession of faith about a jealous and avenging God. Zephaniah starts straightforwardly with an oracle of judgment. Haggai begins with God's condemning quotation of a complacent group of people and their refusal to do his work. Zechariah starts with a call to repentance immediately. And Malachi begins with God's confession of love for a people that don't believe him. But Habakkuk starts out with a complaint against God where the prophet is weary and he's tired and he's carrying this burden. So Habakkuk has a unique contribution for us. Again, I believe as we start a new decade, the word of Habakkuk is a significant one for us. Third observation about this uh, about the, the initial complaint of Habakkuk is that it's actually four complaints and four conclusions. Let me show you what I mean by that. Four complaints with four conclusions, and I think they parallel each other. So he said, oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? That's 2A, and you will not hear. His conclusion, so the law is paralyzed in 4A. Or in 2B, I cry to you violence, and you will not save Right, So 4B says, and justice never goes forth. 3A says, why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? 4C, his conclusion is, for the wicked have surrounded the righteous. And then 3B says, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So his conclusion then is that justice goes forth perverted or crooked. I wanted to point this out to you, not because I just think it's interesting in the text. I wanted to point this out to you because I want to take a moment and let us just realize that there's a difference between a complaint and a conclusion. And I think what's going to happen for Habakkuk is his complaint is not going to go away, but I think his conclusions will change. And I think it's important for us as we journey with these questions before God to know the difference between a complaint and a conclusion. That we can bring our complaints to God, but be very cautious about the conclusions that you draw in the place of your pain. I mean, you know, you know what that's like when people draw conclusions about you, right? Or you say something or you do something and they have a complaint and then they have a conclusion. Well, that's just the way that person is. And you don't get to speak into that, right? I think that's what Habakkuk's doing here. Habakkuk has a complaint. Habakkuk also has a conclusion. And as we come to the end of the book in chapter three, I think we're gonna see that his conclusions uh, are adjusted. Fourth observation I wanna make here before we get into uh, Habakkuk's question is that Habakkuk's complaint is primarily about justice. The big theme here is a justice theme in his initial complaint. He says, um, I cry for help, you don't hear. Right? I cry out violence, you will not save. And then you're making me look, uh, you're making me look at evil, and then you idly stand by. Can you hear the undercurrent of that's not fair? Right? God, if you're gonna make me look at iniquity, then stand up and deal with it. 
Right? If I'm going to cry out to you and you're mighty, then, then show up and rescue. So you hear this, this, this accusation of a lack of justice from Habakkuk to God. And then he brings the word up twice in verse 4. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. It's not going forth because the, the, the wicked have surrounded the righteous. And so if justice does get out, it gets out crooked. It gets out perverted. It's a, it's a broken form of justice. So that's Habakkuk's complaint. It's a theme of, God, you, I thought you were just. I thought you were this way. But the way I'm seeing the world does not match up with my understanding of a God of justice. So the prophet's first complaint states that such evils as violence, injustice, wrong, destruction, strife, and conflict, some of those, some of those just simply demonstrate that God's not being fair or consistent to, to who he is. The situation calls for intervention from a divine judge who is always just and guarantees justice for his people in the world. The problem is that such divine intervention doesn't come. Habakkuk is not seeing God show up. The fifth complaint. The fifth complaint or fifth observation about Habakkuk's complaint is this. Habakkuk's complaint is about a lack of justice in the face of violence. Again, I want to remind you, what is Habakkuk feeling or experiencing under God's leadership as a prophet? So he actually names the word violence, and it's a key term punctuating the message of Habakkuk. That's why there's this sense of injustice. And violence denotes a flagrant violation of moral law by which primarily his own countrymen are perpetrating this, this violence. So what violence is Habakkuk referring to? Well, I think there's two options that, that Habakkuk could be talking about. Last week, I shared with you about Pharaoh Necho, who came in and wanted to fight the Assyrians, the Babylonians north of Israel, and good King Josiah went out um, and stood against the Pharaoh, and that's where Josiah died. And Josiah was in the midst of bringing about reform in Israel. And so Habakkuk could be seeing that and saying, why is, why is violence winning? Why is the good king dying, the one that was bringing about reform? That's one, of the, that's one of the options. But it also could have been the background of Jehoiakim's reign. If you remember, Jehoiakim was the king during the time that uh, Habakkuk was, was operating as a prophet. And all of Judah's evil kings, and all of Judah's evil kings, only one king dared to murder a prophet, and that was Jehoiakim. Manasseh had said, shed so much innocent blood, that was Jehoiakim's uh, great-grandfather, he had shed so much innocent blood, but only Jehoiakim was willing to have a prophet killed. Look at this, um, uh, I think I have, I have the passage for you out of Jeremiah says, there was a, another man who prophesied. This was, he was prophesying during the time of Jeremiah the prophet. His name was Uriah, the son of Shemaiah from Kiriath-Jerim. He prophesied against the city and against the land in uh, words like those of Jeremiah. And when King Jehoiakim, with all his warriors and all the officials, heard his words, the king sought to put him to death. But when Uriah heard of it, he was afraid, and he fled, and he escaped to Egypt. But... King Jehoiakim sent, in Egypt, it sent to Egypt certain men, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, um, and others with him. And they took Uriah from Egypt and brought him to King Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, who struck him down with the sword and dumped his dead body into the burial place for common people. So, so Uriah, the prophet, was speaking, and his life was threatened, so he fled to Egypt. Jehoiakim sent like, uh, sent like some of the, you know, the, like a, a SEAL team in to go get him, bring him back, and then Jehoiakim murders the prophet by his own hand, right? So, so this is what's happening during Habakkuk's day. So Habakkuk, no wonder he's crying out, violence, the prophet of the Lord has been murdered, I mean, the audacity of Jehoiakim. So Habakkuk sees that and says, God, why, why are you allowing this violence to be perpetrated? So no wonder Habakkuk cried violence and wondered why God would not act 
on behalf of his people. So hopefully you're feeling again this sense of injustice uh, in the face of violence that, that Habakkuk had. And what's interesting is this, Habakkuk's problem lay, listen to this, Habakkuk's problem lay in what he knew about the Lord, not based on what he did not know. The problem was Habakkuk expected certain things about God. And it wasn't that his expectations were were ridiculous expectations just based on his own fancy or his own desire. Listen to what God said about himself in Exodus 34, that he was a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation. Habakkuk knew this. Habakkuk's saying, wait a minute, God, this is what you revealed to us through your servant Moses. I even know it's in Exodus 34. I memorized it as a kid. Like, God, how can, how can you let injustice, murder, violence go unpunished? And this passage gives us a beautiful picture of the character of God, and it is this character of God which creates the question for the prophet. How could God continue to turn a deaf ear to the prophet's complaints? The sorrow he felt on account of what he had seen had not been alleviated by any evidence of God's care and concern, even though God had revealed that that's his character, that's his way. So, Those are the observations I wanted to make quickly about Habakkuk and his initial complaint. Now what I want to do is I want to take the heart of Habakkuk's complaint and reframe it for us uh, because this essential argument, this essential frustration about, uh, about God is not unique to Habakkuk. All right, let me introduce you to a guy. This is Epicurus. Uh, he, he was a Greek philosopher. Uh, he lived about 300 years after Habakkuk, about 300 years before, uh, before Jesus. All right, And so he has this argument that he formulates uh, about the existence of God. And basically, he's going to come to the conclusion that if evil exists in the world, then God must not. All right, so listen to, listen to his argument. He says, Uh, If God is willing to prevent evil but not able, then he's not all-powerful. If God is able to prevent evil but not willing, then God's not good. If he is both willing and able, then how is it that evil can exist? And if he's neither willing nor able, then why would we bother calling him God? Right, that's that's the, the logic of, of Epicurus. He then concludes that it is logically impossible for both God and suffering to exist. And since we know that suffering exists, therefore God must not. All right, that's that's in, in 300 BC, that's the, the logic of Epicurus as he articulated. Um, his argument against the existence of God based on the suffering, the same sort of suffering that Habakkuk is complaining to God about. Now, let me, let me restate this argument in another form because Epicurus wasn't the last one to articulate this, and this is still, these same arguments are around today. Let me, let me say it this way. Um, this is called the trilemma. It's a more simplified version, but very similar. The Christians believe that God is all-powerful. The Christians also believe that God is all-loving. And yet, we also know that there is suffering. Hence, this doesn't make sense. This is incongruous. It It doesn't fit together. Therefore, the conclusion is there must not be a God. Like can, can, can you feel the, the weight of that argument, right? Can, can, you, can you hear that? Have you heard that before? Have you talked to people that they're wrestling with that very issue? Now, you know, you're a group of people that have come to church, so I kind of make some assumptions that you're not wrestling with the existence of God. Some of you may be, 
Some of you may be curious about, you know, the, is Jesus historical? Is God real? And that's fair, but I think probably a lot of you, you've come to the conclusion that God exists. That's why you gather here on Sunday to worship him, right? So, so I don't think that you're necessarily won over by Epicurus' argument of how can an all-powerful and all-loving God sit back and watch um, evil and suffering go on in the world. But these are very rational arguments and they exist in the culture around us. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't ultimately find these arguments convincing. Hopefully that's good news for you as a pastor that I believe in the existence of an almighty God. These arguments haven't won me over. I don't find them convincing. Um and I disagree with their conclusions and I'm not going to take the time this morning to unravel them. Uh, I would recommend, if you're curious about unraveling these particular arguments, I would recommend you go to the Truth For Living class that Ben Acuff and Chris Laws are leading. Uh, I think uh, Ben was telling me it's week, mm, I can't remember, uh, week like three that they're going to get to this very issue and look at these specific arguments. But let me make this point about these arguments, all right? Even though I don't think they're conclusive, saying that God does not exist, I do think they start to raise doubt about how trustworthy is this God that exists. While I don't think there's strong enough arguments to make me an atheist, I do think there's strong enough arguments to get the people of God doubting the justice, the goodness, and the sovereignty of God. And that's why I want to spend the next three weeks talking about how can evil exist and God be just? How can evil exist and God be sovereign? How can evil exist and God uh, be good? So I want to spend a little time on the question Habakkuk is raising about can God be fair? Can God actually be just? And this question rings out loud and clear. How can God be just and evil still triumph in a given moment? So the way I want to respond to this question is by giving you a very simple, simple example and then talking about some points related to God's justice. So as Angie and I uh, kind of distribute the responsibilities in the home, there are some things that fall my direction that honestly I don't think are quite fair. One of them, one of them is uh, I'm on uh, vomit cleanup. And here's the rationale for that is it makes her sick to clean that up. Now, come on, that just seems unfair, right? Like, how can I argue with, how can I argue with that one? Like, I like it. Anyway, the, the second one is uh, I am responsible for bringing our children to get their shots or blood work. Somehow I get that wonderful privilege to bring our children to experience that. Now, um, I don't want to get into the discussion about the validity of vaccinations and, and all of that kind of hot-button issue, but just go with my example for me, if you would, all right? So think about what's going on for a child when they're like, I don't know, think like three years old, right? At three years old, they've established some level of trust and credibility, hopefully, with their parent, right? And so usually, usually what happens is I bring them, and I mean, I pull out all like you know, I coach them, I get them ready, and I use the language of, well, you are going to feel a little pressure, a little pinch, you know, no matter what I promise that's coming after, as soon as they see that needle, like, everything's, you know, all bets are off. Like, there is no way that needle is getting into their body, right? So it usually ends up with some sort of having to pin them down, use, like, my, all my arms, legs, get other people involved just to just to make it happen. But what's going on in the mind of that three-year-old? Now, this child's obviously younger than three, but I love, see what they're doing? They're looking up at mom. Like, what on earth is about to happen to me? How, how, could, how could you do this to me? I thought you loved me. And I actually saw you give this person money so they could inflict <laughs> this pain on me. Like, what? What is going on here? And I think there are only two points of consolation for that child, right? The one is, hopefully, there's enough collateral built up in the trust category that they would trust that parent. And maybe after they get through this pain and this trauma of the shot, 
right? They'll be able to snuggle up and, and cry together and, and, you know, maybe go out to get a snack, you know, like to reestablish some sort of trust, not in the process, because the child looking at the needle, what they're saying is, that's not fair. Hey, you're, you're the person that takes care of me. You have promised good to me. This is not good. This is evil. This hurts, right? And there is nothing you can say that changes those facts. They lack the comprehension to understand antibodies and viruses fighting and all of that, right? You could, the best you can say is this owie is going to create something good for you in the future. Like, but but they, they lack the capacity for anything better than that explanation. But here's the second point of consolation. The second point of consolation is that in time, that child will be able to develop the maturity to understand why those shots, that blood work, was beneficial for their health. They don't get it yet, but in time, they'll develop the maturity to look back and understand that. Right? Friends, that, that in a nutshell is the problem of evil. Right? In a given moment, we, we cannot understand what, how this good, loving God could allow this to be going on. And in those moments, the, the best I'm going to be able to offer you is to lean into the character of God. Trust the, trust the goodness of the one who's leading you. I know you can't get your mind around how this evil could be perpetrated, but but the call is lean into the character of God, just like that child is looking up, leaning into the character of this mom that has cared for them for so long. And the other thing I will offer to you is there will come a day when you will be able to look back and see the purposes of God in a state of more maturity than we currently have and see the wonder of his work in your life of how he could use, and this is what we're going to find out, how he was able to use something of evil as a tool to accomplish something of good. So let me tell you two things about, about the justice of God. The justice of God in the face of evil, there's two things that we need, we need to remember. The first one is justice will eventually win. Justice will eventually win. The challenge that I have against these arguments against the existence of God is they're taking a snapshot of a moment and drawing conclusions in the middle of a story. And you, and you know you can't do that, right? Just like a child can't draw conclusions about the goodness of their parent in the middle of receiving that needle when there's more of the story to be understood and more of the story to unfold. So justice, justice will eventually win. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 12 when he's talking to a group of people who are being persecuted. They are facing tremendous evil and he tells them, he has the audacity to tell them that they are to bless those that persecute them. But there's a reason why he's able to say that. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. Right? So don't take justice into your own hands, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Right? Vengeance is coming. Justice is coming. You can bank on it. You can count on it. It might not be coming in the time frame that you desire it. It might not be coming in the moment that you want it to be there. But God is a God of justice. Justice is coming. Amen. And when we're saying that, that, um, that where evil is, 
right? When we're saying God, evil is present, God's response is, don't worry, justice will come. And some of you need to hear that message. Some of you need to hear that there has been gross sin committed against you. You need to hear justice will be served. Amen. It Maybe not in the time frame that you are seeing it in the way that you would like it, but God is a God of justice. He promises, I will repay. So justice is coming. So Epicurus presupposes in his argument that the current state affairs will always be the same, but according to Romans chapter 12, that is not true. Justice will win, evil will be defeated. And, and this is like, when you're disciplining your children when they're younger, right? What's interesting is uh, I find when kids are younger and you need to discipline them, um, that correction needs to come immediately, right? So like a, a one-year-old, a two-year-old, right? You're not gonna be able to talk about what happened last week, right? That discipline needs to happen in a given moment. They, they, they physically lack the ability to retain Right? There's that thing called object permanence, right? Like where babies, like if you leave the room, they think, oh, you don't exist anymore, right? Developmentally, they have to get to the point where you can bring up discipline later on. And you can say when they're older, hey, I need to talk about what happened last week with you, right? Because you can create, you can create that distance. That's how God is treating us. He's calling us to greater maturity, we want consequences in the moment. God, I want you to deal with this injustice now. But God is calling us to a new level of maturity, saying, oh, justice is coming, but you, you need to wait. You need to wait on that. So the second point I want to tell you about justice is that God is incredibly committed to it. God even upholds justice in his grace. Right, God is so committed to justice. And, and you need to hear this passage. This passage of scripture is revolutionary in my understanding of the gospel. And it's uh, Romans chapter 3, 23 to 26. Because the way Paul sets this up is he echoes the very complaint of Habakkuk. And he sets this up like God is in the court of all of creation, and all of creation is saying, God, it is not fair. And what's not fair is you cannot forgive sin. Like, God, you have said that sin deserves a consequence, so how can you just forgive? How can you offer grace? God, if you are offering grace to those who have sinned, that is unfair. You are an unjust judge. So God is answering this sort of question. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whoop, there we go. Uh, that is in Christ Jesus, right? Whom God has put forward. All right, so, so all have sinned. They've fallen short of the glory of God. All these sinners then are justified in verse 24 freely by Jesus. And it's at this point that creation is saying that's not fair. God, you, you can't do that. You, you can't just forgive freely those that have fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says, for the wages of sin is death. God, this doesn't work. You can't be holy and allow this kind of sin to go unpunished. A punishment must be given because you said the wages of sin is death. So we have to read on to verse 25. And he says this, God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. That is a punishment that brings about satisfaction. So God put forward Jesus to receive punishment, to receive wrath. So the punishment that was due for all sinners was diverted from them and on to Jesus. So to the cry of, of, of all of creation that says, God, a punishment must be meted out. God says, yes, it does. That's why I sent my son. And so the sacrifice of propitiation by his blood, and that's to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because his divine forbearance had passed over former sins. So all the sins of the past, all the sins of the present, all the sins of the future, for those that are found in Christ, all God's wrath is poured out on Jesus for those sins. Look at verse 26. God did this because he's so committed to justice. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that God might be just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ Jesus. So that God might be fair, God might be just in bringing about extravagant grace. That's why Jesus was a sacrifice for our sins. So God could extend his punishment, his wrath that was due because God is committed to justice. Friends, we have got to know that at the core that our God is a just God. And justice will be served even in his extravagant grace. God is a just God, and justice will be, will be enacted for every infraction, either in the person of Jesus or in the individual sinner. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Right? So either the justice of God will be meted out for you on Jesus, or the justice of God will be meted out on you as the perpetrator of sin. But God is committed to justice. And at the foundation of our faith, we have got to know that truth. So what do we do with this? What do we do when evil touches, touches your life and it feels unfair? I have two things that I want to give us as a way of closing. Two points of application. The first one is uh, a two-parter. So we wait and we grieve. The first thing we do when evil touches our life is wait and grieve. Wait, pay attention, and grieve. I remember a time when evil touched my life, and what I wanted to do was just be brave. I wanted to just say, you know what, I, like, I know that God's going to win in the end. I, I trust him, and I was trying to have some sort of religious hope in God because I knew I should, and I knew that eventually God would triumph. And I hadn't heard last week's message of the need to be honest on my journey to spiritual maturity in a season of pain. Uh, but I know I've told you this story before, but the way God revealed this to me is I was sitting in a movie theater, and my wife and I had been walking through uh, just when evil had touched our life. It was a very painful season, and we had been trying to figure it out and talk together and pray together, and we just needed a break from all this processing that we were doing together, and so we decided to go to the movies. And so we went to the movies, and we saw this wonderfully awful film, uh, and was, I think it was called My Sister's Keeper or something like that, but it was about evil touching a family's life, and it was way too close to home. And so, I had, again, I have been trying to just pretend like, hey, I'm going to get through this. God's good. I don't really want to look at all the nuances of the pain that I'm experiencing. But I'm watching this movie, and God just starts to speak, with, God just starts to, speak to me about being honest with, with the evil that was touching my life and starting to, to wait and name the pain that I was experiencing rather than just moving through it. And I started to cry. And then I stopped crying and started weeping. And I kept on weeping. The credits rolled for the movie and Greg kept on weeping and louder and louder. And I just can't, I didn't see anybody leave the theater. By the time I looked up, the theater was empty except for me and my wife and I had just wept and I, I think about that moment now, and I, and I kind of laugh about the absurdity of me uncontrollably crying in some movie theater as it empties. These people are probably like, what is up with this guy? But what was happening 
is the Father was showing me his provision of grace and mercy were going to meet me at the place where I paid attention to pain. That there was no provision of grace for me if I was going to pretend that everything was okay. If I just had some religious answer and didn't pay attention to the pain, then God's love was going to pass me by because it would intersect with my life when I was willing to be honest about pain. There was a woman that came up to me last week after the service it was just about being honest in our pain, and she said, I have felt distant from God for years, and then just this week, like in preparation for this message, just this week, I decided I was just going to be honest with God and tell me about his frustration. And that was the first time I sensed his presence in years. And it was just when she was willing to be honest. And what I wanted to do was ignore the loss that came from evil, but ignoring is a subtle form of destruction. Instead of waiting and paying attention, what we'll do is we'll seek to minimize or deny the pain that evil has brought. Here's the problem. The pain doesn't go away. The pain is still there, even if we pretend it's not. And when that happens, what we end up doing is we demand that someone or something take away this pain. So we might turn to personal achievement, try to create an ideal family, try to create, um, uh, like really dive into a career or church activity just to escape the pain. Or if we don't move to achievement, we might move to escaping. And we look to numb the pain through chemical addiction, sexual addiction, apathy, just trying to deal with this pain that we're doing our best to pretend isn't there. And I'll be honest, the culture around us is not one that makes it easy for us to wait, right? The culture around us uh, is always pushing for more, bigger, better, greater, faster, sooner, right? And finding God in the middle of pain is not a bigger, faster, sooner process. It is a process of needing to slow down. And honestly, well-meaning but misguided Christian culture has also added to what I would call is an inhumane and unbiblical avoidance of grief and loss by telling those who are grieving that they need to hey just rejoice rejoice in the lord always and again i say rejoice before they ever get to the place of habakkuk of being honest with their grief being honest with the evil that's touching them here's what happens when we don't wait in the face of evil what's going to happen is your heart's going to grow cold and after years, we're going to find ourselves less alive and less attentive to the voice of God. That's why I said this issue gets to the foundation, right? And you're going to find yourself starting to be numb to the work and movement of the Holy Spirit because you've been unwilling to be honest with God in the place of pain. So in the face of evil, we need to wait. We need to wait and we need to grieve. Second thing we need to do is remember that God is just. Remembering is not a passive activity like we're just, oh, hey, I, I remember that. No, no, no. Remembering is active engagement with truth. It's fighting for faith in what God has said. So don't let the enemy rob you of your theology. Be careful. In the place of evil, be careful about your self-talk, your conclusions about your circumstances, the, the, the little voice that's saying, yeah, God, this is so unfair that God would do this. What, be, be careful of those conclusions, right? The, what's going on in your mind? Because what's happening in those little thoughts is you bringing God into the court of your own judgment, and you starting to determine and draw conclusions about the character of God. So if we're not active in remembering who God is, our complaint will quickly become conclusion and we will start to erode our confidence in the character of God. I wanna end with a quote here by Paul Tripp. I think it's incredibly insightful. It came from uh, his book called Suffering. It's a little long, but I think it's worth, it's worth hearing. He said, in the place of suffering, and I remember I'm saying in the place where evil touches your life, 
right? At that question mark, that's the place of suffering. He says this, force yourself to pay attention to your private conversation. That is the words you say to yourself that no one else hears. We are always talking to ourselves about ourselves, life, God, others, meaning and purpose, relationships, trouble, solutions, hope, the past, the future, etc. Because of this constant internal conversation, we influence ourselves more than anyone else does. Isn't that an incredible thought? Because you're always talking to yourself, you are your greatest influence, which is why I said at the beginning, I want to appeal to your mind because you're gonna be counseling yourself. Because we hear, uh, because we hear that we have to say more than we hear anyone else, right? We listen to ourselves more than anyone else. You need to confront evidences of unbelief in your private conversation. Fighting the devil's lies means being aware of the talk of your own heart and defending your heart against any perspective that would call into question the wisdom, love, goodness, grace, and faithfulness of God. Pray that God would give you insight from your own heart and the strength to fight this spiritual battle even in the moments when you feel profoundly weak. Have you allowed the lies of the enemy whispered to you in struggle to sow seeds of doubt about God? So the reason we need to be honest is because we need to guard our hope. We need to guard our faith. And if we're, on, if we're not honest, then these insidious lies, which will become conclusions, will creep in and erode our confidence in the God who is leading us through these circumstances where evil touches our lives. So, when your life is touched by evil and it starts to feel like God is not just, be sure to wait and grieve and then fight remembering the justice of God and rehearse the truth of, of Romans chapter 3, rehearse the truth of Romans chapter 12, that God is a God of justice, but be honest about that faith battle so that your complaints don't become false conclusions about God. So here's how I want us to, to end our time. Worship team is up here, and they're gonna lead us in a song. And what I'd like you to do is use that time to consider, like, to consider your own journey where evil has touched your life, and are there questions rising up in you? If you're honest, are there questions rising up in you about the fact that God is not just? Are, are you wrestling with that one? Or, or are you in a place of confidence in the justice of God? So just use, you know, use uh, Paul Tripp's questions here. Have you allowed the lies of the enemy whispered to you in struggle to sow seeds of doubt about the justice of God? So just consider that uh, as the worship team leads us in this closing song. So would you please stand up?